States, developers, and investors are increasingly looking to green banks as a way to use innovative financing to connect clean energy projects with capital. Now, the idea of a national climate bank is seeing major momentum under the Biden administration. Will this be the year we finally see a national green bank come to life? Let's find out. Hi, I'm Alana Knopp, senior reporter with New Project Media, and today we're on the air with Jeffrey Shubb, executive director of the Coalition for Green Capital. Jeff, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Alana. Really happy to be here. It's thrilling to talk to you again. It really is. And before we get into our topic today, I was wondering if you could kind of tell our listeners a little bit about the Coalition for Green Capital. Sure. So uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we've been working for over a decade, actually, to create green banks. We, um, we actually were founded coming out of the uh, Obama transition back in 2008-2009 when our uh, co-founder and still CEO Reed Hunt was a member of the Obama transition team. Uh, in his former life, he was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission during the Clinton administration. And as part of his work on the transition team, he proposed that the what became the ARA stimulus plan should include the creation of a national green bank as a institutional form of uh, long-term clean energy infrastructure investment, effectively, uh, seeing the economic benefits of that as part of, as what should be included in the stimulus plan. Uh, it was not included in the stimulus plan, and so uh, Reed and others formed the coalition to be an advocacy organization, originally focused entirely on uh, federal green bank legislation. At the time, nobody had conceived of a state green bank, uh, and that effort was partially successful. Uh, the House of Representatives passed legislation to create a national green bank. It had bipartisan support, um, but ultimately was incorporated as part of the cap and trade bill that was not taken up by the Senate and all of that uh, fell by the wayside, uh, which led our organization to spend most of the last intervening decade focused on state green bank creation. And so most of our work is a combination of thought leadership and advocacy, but a lot of it is really sort of on the ground technical assistance, helping to design and stand up green banks at the state level in the U.S., as well as now uh, the national level in the U.S. and in developing countries. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for the background and the context. That's really helpful. Um, and I'm thinking that we couldn't be talking at a better time. <laughs> um, yeah, the timing is truly incredible. So we know that last week there was a major announcement from President Biden that included a federal green bank. So can you fill us in on the latest developments around the push for a national green bank and CGC's efforts in this space? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very, very good timing. It's a very exciting moment in, in the history of the green bank space. So on uh, last Wednesday, President Biden, uh, his White House rolled out the American Jobs Plan, which is his comprehensive infrastructure, energy, climate package that he now wants to be his next priority legislatively after the passage of the relief bill earlier this year. Um, it's about, uh, depending, depending on how you add it up, just under $3 trillion of spending and tax cuts. And a national green bank is expressly a part of it. It includes uh, what's called the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator, which is the technical name of the National Green Bank or National Climate Bank, depending on uh, who, who you're talking to, um, that passed the House of Representatives twice last year and is the, the bill uh, introduced by Representative Debbie Dingell in the House and led by Senators Markey and Van Hollen in the Senate. So this is the very specific National Green Bank proposal that 
CGC and our allies have been working towards and pushing for uh, the last two years since this campaign kicked off. And so to finally reach this point where the White House and the president is, is expressly endorsing this idea as part of his uh, comprehensive climate and infrastructure legislation is, is a very cool moment for Green Banks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just throwing in this surprise question now. What was it like the moment, you know, the moment when, I mean, this was a nail biter, but, you know, I was pretty confident, as I'm sure you were, that President Biden would include this initiative um, in, in his proposal. But what was it like actually hearing that from the president? Um, it, it was intense. Um, it was a terrifying 12 hours or so because word had started leaking out on Tuesday night and there was a story in the post and frankly it all didn't look so great. It looked like the package was going to be smaller and shaped differently than we expected and somebody told me, oh, it's not in there. And I got that email at midnight so it didn't sleep very well. And oh then my well, God. Behold, the fact sheet comes out at about 6 a.m. on Wednesday and there it is. It's named Clean Energy Accelerator. And so it was, you know, a huge sigh of relief, first of all, to know we'd gotten over that mountain and then sort of stopping to actually reflect on what had actually happened and um, that we, you know, we got to this point. We're not done, but getting that validation means we're, you know, we're in the ball game, and it was a very, very good feeling. Yeah, now I can only imagine. I was really excited to, to hear the news. So you've talked about the Clean Future Act, and that includes uh, an aggressive clean energy standard and a $100 billion clean energy and sustainability accelerator, a.k.a. A, a national green bank. So can you talk about this as a model for how Congress and the Biden administration should think about its climate and infrastructure policy? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Clean Future Act is a, is a comprehensive actual drafted legislation put forward by uh, Chairman Frank Pallone, who leads the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which represents basically his committee's uh, vision for what comprehensive clean energy and climate legislation should look like. So a, a draft version of the Clean Future Act was introduced uh, about a year ago, in, or I guess it was around February of 2020. Um, it was never turned into actual written legislation, but it was draft legislation. And the National Green Bank was included in that. So that was a really great start. And then he and his committee uh, leadership reintroduced the Clean Future Act, an updated version of it, uh, earlier this year, uh, a couple of months ago, and it was actual draft legislation. And there, the Green Bank was again the accelerator called out specifically, and at the updated funding level of 100 billion dollars. So this was the funding level that was included in the reintroduced version of this bill that the sponsors I named earlier put forward in February of 2021. And so it's really, really important and really exciting to get Chairman Pallone's inclusion and support for this policy because the Energy and Commerce Committee has so much sway and so much jurisdictional control over everything related to energy and climate on the House side. He's a, he's a very powerful committee leader. And, you know, this was a pretty heavily featured piece of the package. And in fact, I think the entire Clean Future Act is a has it has a number of elements, including a clean energy standard at the center of it, which you identified. Um, but the spending elements together add up to 500, I believe it's $565 billion of spending. And the $100 billion for the accelerator is the number one largest line item in there. So this is not a small provision of the Clean Future Act, it's a big piece. And you know, it's, um, it was clearly laid out as a template of what 
um, that committee thinks should be part of the next climate and infrastructure package. And a lot of those pieces are included in the president's American jobs plan. Uh, clean energy standards in there, obviously, that's a big one. The accelerator is in there as well. And so um, clearly there was good communication between the House and the White House about including some of those pieces. And again, it's for, for us, <laughs> when we started this campaign, our objective was effectively ubiquity and to be included. And if someone's writing a package, we got to be in there. We need to be included because we think this is that kind of a flexible policy that can be a part of any, any sort of approach to addressing climate and clean energy. And so being in the Clean Future Act was really, really important to sort of cement the support for this policy from the House side. And then we saw that echoed last week in the president's plan. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so exciting. It feels like there's a very partisan climate in Congress right now. I don't think anybody would really argue with that, um, seeing what's been going on. But yet a National Green Bank, though, seems to have garnered a lot of bipartisan, bipartisan support. And I recall, because we've talked about this before many times, I recall that you once described this initiative as a totally nonpartisan, no regrets policy that could just as easily be passed by Republicans in government as Democrats. Can you talk about some of the conversations you've been having with folks on both sides of the aisle and why this has gained so much support and momentum? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the easiest way to explain the bipartisan nature of it is um, it's, not a, it's not a regulatory mechanism. It's not a mandate. Um, it's a market-oriented way of driving productive investment into projects that can't otherwise access capital. And so it's about mobilizing private sector investment and activating markets while delivering benefits. And, you know, the benefits part is key. This is about delivering clean energy and climate solutions to businesses and households that make them better off, save them money, make their homes more resilient, um, make their homes more comfortable, reduce pollution. There are no projects financed by green banks that don't deliver those benefits because it's a market-based mechanism. There's no market for something that nobody wants. That's not how markets work. And so fundamentally, this has always been a fairly nonpartisan idea at the state level to begin with, where most of the action has been for the last decade. So, you know, Governor Sandoval, a Republican governor in, in Nevada, signed legislation to create a Nevada state green bank several years ago. And at the same time in Connecticut, the very first state Green Bank was created with bipartisan legislation that had, I believe it was unanimous <laughs> votes in, in one chamber and maybe like three votes against in the other, meaning this has always been supported by Republicans and Democrats at the state level. Um, there are, the preponderance of state Green Banks has historically been in states that look uh, historically blue, but that map has changed and expanded a lot in the last couple of years, and particularly in parallel to the advancement of the federal legislation, because a big piece of what the accelerator will do is help create and fund state level green banks that can then invest in local distributed energy projects that are not really well addressed by a national entity like the accelerator. And so if you, what are the states that are now pursuing green banks or exploring them? Um, you know, South Carolina, Alaska, Maine, uh, we're in conversations with partners in West Virginia, Utah, New Mexico. You know, this is not this is not a traditional blue map, to put it mildly. It's a very bipartisan or nonpartisan set of issues. And so you see this percolate up to, to Congress. And, you know, 
folks represent jurisdictions, they represent states, and they want to deliver benefits back to their communities. And they've heard loud and clear from their constituents that they want this so that we actually now, as you said, have bipartisan support, uh, co-sponsorship on on the House bill with um, Representative Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania and Representative Young from Alaska, you know, the, the dean of the House who I don't think anybody would accuse of being progressive, co-sponsored a bill to create a $100 billion national green bank in, in the accelerator. And so um, it's really caught people's attention, especially Representative Young coming on and, you know, all the credit in the world to our our partners in Alaska and, and to Representative Dingle for working on that because she's been an amazing champion and, and, and leader on this. Um, and it's really, really important that this is bipartisan for the way this is going to play out for the next couple of months in Congress. So, um, you know, and I actually had, you know, a conversation with folks in the White House just the last couple of days about how they're excited to feature and lift up the accelerator because, you know, nobody's going to accuse the accelerator of being a hyper-partisan idea. It's a sort of no-brainer, non-partisan idea that it's very easy for everybody to rally around. And I think the way this is going to play out on Capitol Hill, um, you know, the Senate, there's 50 Democratic senators. You know, it's no secret that Senator Manchin from West Virginia is a linchpin to a lot of this happening. Mm. I don't I can't pretend to speak for him, but I know that policies that look like they're bipartisan or nonpartisan nature are going to be ones that are going to be more appealing to him and other moderate Democrats who are going to have a lot of say in how this comes together. Yeah, absolutely. I Manchin has definitely been very outspoken, very vocal about his need for this bipartisan kind of structure behind policies. Um, and, you know, I think it really speaks to the work that you guys have been doing um, at the coalition as far as getting everybody on board. And I also agree with you that it's, it's a total no-brainer. And it's nice to see in 2021 that Democrats and Republicans can kind of rally around the same thing and support it and come together. Um, so that that's kind of a, like a nice added perk to <laughs> all of this, um, especially yeah. in the climate that we're in right now. And it's really, um, you know, it's remarkable. It's, you know, I've been, you know, on this beat, so to speak, for the last two plus years, just conversation after conversation with people in government and Capitol Hill and around, um, you know, people often ask like, well, what is the Republican reaction when you go into a Republican Senate office or a representative's office. Nobody throws us out when we're talking about this. You know, it doesn't mean they all jump up and down and say, you know, where do I sign? But um, the core fundamentals of this are very broadly appealing to people. They get it. And again, they all represent somewhere in every community, no matter, you know, no matter what every community has needs, particularly when it comes to serving underserved populations or grid resilience uh, or job creation, especially now as we're you know, starting to hopefully come out of the pandemic, um, everybody can can see how this would benefit their their community back home. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so like state and local green banks, a, a national green bank um, can be, I know you guys have described it as that flexible capital provider that can step in and ask a faltering project, like where is it hurting right now? What needs to be <laughs> in the marketplace? And then provide it. So how are developers looking at this? And will this give, um, will this concept give kind of on a national level, offer them, offer developers that safety net level of confidence to deploy more projects? 
Well, so the objective is, you know, the, the name Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator is, it's a helpful because it's literally descriptive of what this is meant to do. It's meant to accelerate the expansion of market and pull forward projects that otherwise would not be addressed for a long period of time, which is, you know, it's worth pausing and, and sort of dwelling on that for a second of why do we need to do that? Why do we need to accelerate this? You know, the truth is, I, I actually believe this is true, is that if time were not a factor, you would never need something like a green bank because eventually over time, private capital markets would figure this out. Somebody, somebody would figure out how to finance and aggregate at scale, you know, home electrification projects where each project costs $60,000 and maybe has a dozen different pieces of equipment that all have to be installed by three different technicians. Somebody eventually would figure out how to finance that. The problem is time is a factor. We have a limited amount of time. We have to accelerate this. And so something like electrification or building electrification, which might not otherwise happen without policy intervention, probably wouldn't happen for decades. That can't wait decades. We've got to do it now. And so that's the frame we sort of bring to a lot of what the accelerator and what green banks are doing is providing capital to developers, project developers, uh, banks, collaborating with investors to bring their mark, their capital forward to address parts of the market that are not being served today that, you know, they're not being left out because there's some outrageous technology risk someone's unwilling to take or because this project is garbage and the developer doesn't know what they're doing and it's never going to be financeable. It's specifically intervening into projects that really ought to be built, but for some market barrier that's inhibiting the flow of capital today that we sort of know that barrier is not permanent and can be overcome with really thoughtful and targeted interventions. So this is very much about helping developers expand their pipeline so that they can serve, you know, we often talk about, you know, serviceable addressable market versus total addressable market. This is about expanding that, the total addressable market so that the pie of what can be built gets much, much bigger, much more faster than it would uh, by natural course. And so what does that actually mean? So, you know, it means interventions like uh, loan loss reserves, partial loan guarantees, subordinated debt, all different forms of effectively credit enhancement that can crowd in private investment into a transaction that wouldn't otherwise happen. And these are tools that green banks around the country and around the world really have been using for over a decade. So this isn't this kind of blending of public and private capital is not actually that novel, but has never been applied on a national scale. Um, so there's that risk mitigation. There's a huge need for aggregation and warehousing, particularly of small disaggregated projects where, you know, a major institutional investor is never going to finance a $50,000, $60,000 home electrification project. This, the scale economy doesn't work for them. But if somebody can build up that market and aggregate a portfolio of loans into a scale that actually is diversified and attractive at, at a larger scale, then it can be sold off and can build secondary markets. And so again, these are techniques that have actually been used and proven out. Um, but I think the last piece of intervention that is a little bit squishier and hard to see is um, how do you coordinate markets? How do you bring different project actors together when it's unbelievably complicated? And you know, you can call it coordination. You can talk. You can call it just directly leadership and the greenback saying, "I'm going to take the first step forward to do something nobody else has done." You know, the New York Green Bank they do a lot of pioneering transaction work where they're just literally creating transaction structures that nobody has done before where they know 
this is the structure of how this transaction has to be put together. No private actor is going to invest the human capital and time that it takes to figure out how to do it and write up the documentation and all the sort of technical stuff that happens behind the scenes. As the New York Green Bank sometimes says, like, it's their job to incur the brain damage to figure out how to do something that's never been done before so that then the private sector can follow on and take advantage of that. And again, that's the kind of market creation investment effectively that uh, private actors are not incentivized to do on their own, but which a mission-oriented entity like a Green Bank or the accelerators, that's, that's their job. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're talking, you know, one of the things that just excited me so much uh, about this national Green Bank is just from my own reporting, um, you know, I cover the Northeast. And so just reporting on these state and local Green Banks and seeing that they actually have gotten these projects completed on the ground, they are up and running and online. <laughs> And now I, you imagine that on at a national scale, and it's it's so exciting to think about that these fabulous, huge, large-scale projects um, can actually get done and actually help us, you know, fight climate change and get us to a clean energy economy. So it's just so exciting to to hear about. Yeah, I mean, the scale of this is really important because um, you know the president's plan is. You know, it's about $2.25 billion of spending and several hundred billion dollars on top of that of tax credit. So again, let's just round up and say $3 trillion. Um, that's certainly plenty. And if, if he came out with a number that was double that, I, I don't think I would bat an eye at it and say that's too much. Because, um, you know, again, you think about it from a, from a climate standpoint of saving the planet and you sort of can talk yourself into thinking any number is reasonable from that perspective. But the truth is, this is fundamentally a positive investment for the economy that is job creating and increases productivity. And so expanding something like the Green Bank model nationally, all it does is deliver more benefits to more communities. And so we can think about that from literally taking what, you know, Michigan saves or uh, the D.C. Green Bank have done in their in their states and their communities and exporting it to more states and just replicating it. And that's really important. And particularly for addressing disadvantaged communities, that's how you do it. You have to do it at the local level and, you know, meeting the 40% investment requirement that's placed on the accelerator and is aligned with Biden's Justice for the Initiative. You, you're going to, you have to get there through close collaboration at the community level. And so that's what the state Green bank sort of expansion and replication is about. But as you said, there's, there's national scale investment needs that, you know, it's really hard for any individual green bank to have a role in the construction of long distance, high voltage uh, merchant transmission lines that are built to carry, you know, distant renewable, cheap renewable power to a, a city that otherwise isn't able to get access to it. Um, a state can't do that, but a national green bank could. Um, you, know, you think about the sort of classic chicken and egg problems that stop the development of transmission lines where, you know, there's something like you know, two dozen of those kinds of projects around the country that are ready to go and collectively uh, require something north of $30 billion of investment. But nobody wants to move first. A developer doesn't want to be the first one to sign up to use the capacity of a transmission line before they know that that line's actually going to get built. But the construction financing for that line doesn't come through. The, the financers won't provide it until 
they have certainty that there's going to be off takers to, to, you know, use the line. That's a really classic role for a, a, a green bank, or in this case, a national green bank to step in and play the role, for example, of being effectively an anchor tenant of committing to use the capacity of that line, unlock that construction financing, and then get out of that anchor tenant position and sell it to market participants. Just because again, a green bank is that's their job is to step forward and be a first actor to uh, unlock all these other private actors that want to step in. Um, and so we've seen what green banks can do. Uh, we've seen part of what green banks can do at, at a local and distributed level. We've not even come close to seeing what they can do in the U.S. at a national level. Um, there are national green banks in other states that we can look to as models, uh, particularly in Australia. But I think the opportunity in the U.S. is is quite beyond what we've seen from the state green banks to date, simply because of the scale. Absolutely. You touch on so many good points. It's going to be so exciting to see what a federal green bank can do on a national level. Level. So, you know, we'll all be watching. Um, so it's a clean energy standard. Uh, that's become a favored national climate policy. President Biden ran on an aggressive target of 100% clean power by 2035. And that is the target used in the Clean Future Act. So I'm wondering, why is it so important to combine these two policies. And if it is simply mandated that 100% of power come from renewable sources, why do we still need a green bank? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good question. And I think, you know, just to put the clean energy or put President Biden's goal in context of 100% clean power by 2035, um, just do some really rough math and say, you know, you make some estimates about how much power consumption and demand is going to grow over the next 15 years based on some assumption of electrification of transportation and, and buildings, but mostly in electrification, um, and excuse me, in, in transportation. And you make some assumptions about, you know, hydropower and nuclear power, you know, st sticking around effectively. They're not, they're not going anywhere in the next 15 years. And so, all right, everything left on the grid, whether it's gas or coal, every bit of that market share has to be taken up by renewable power. And so you figure that out and it basically tells you that our energy mix 15 years from now would have to be something like uh, 75 to 80% of the power coming from uh, renewable, non-hydro or non-hydro renewables compared to, um, I think the number is something around 12% today. And so one other interesting way of putting that in context is look at what happened in terms of market share growth for non-hydro renewables over the previous 15 years from let's say 2005 to 2020 and compare it to the next 15 years that share of that rate of market share growth is going to have to grow by it's about 7x in the next 15 years compared to what it did in the last 15 years which is all just a mathematical way of saying this has to grow really really fast and this has to if we think about like a technology adoption curve or an S-curve that you see in a lot of technologies, we can't stay on the flat part of the, of the curve. We need to start going straight up that curve immediately. And so that's just sort of the framing for, for this. Um, and so that gives you a sense of the scale and the speed of what has to happen. And, you know, the importance of this to the question of like, why has this become a primary policy mechanism? I think there's two reasons for that. One is, you know, this, the pathway to a decarbonized net zero economy lies in electrifying parts of the economy that are not running on electric power right now. And that electricity has to be clean in order for there to not be emissions. So, you know, transportation and industry and, and you know, 
heating buildings uh, in a lot of parts of the country. It's run by combusting fossil fuel. You have to replace that technology with electric technology that's run on electric power. And then the, the electrons have to be coming from renewable sources. And so the linchpin of the entire strategy of decarbonizing our economy runs through renewable power on the grid or else, you know, if we're going to be electrifying buildings and industry and transportation, but, you know, there's a massive amount of coal power, then you're not going to get rid of all the emissions. So from a technical standpoint, that's why 100% renewable energy became such a sort of top line policy. You know, on why, why the CES, you know, I think there's a little bit of a, um, combination of lesson learned and changing politics around the historic sort of preferred policies of either a carbon tax or a cap and trade. You know, I think a lot of people are still carrying the scars of what happened in 2009 with the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill. Um, I think also very importantly, the rising attention that is paid to the environmental justice communities and the, um, you know, the views that those communities have on policies have a, has a big impact on this where, you know, environmental justice advocates, not just recently, but forever, have been really strongly against market-based mechanisms like a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade mechanism because they see them as both regressive and um, economically harmful, disproportionately economically harmful to low income. I don't want to wade too deeply into that. There's a lot of, you know, policy solutions that are meant to get at it. But I think the combination of the sort of scars from 2009 and the change in politics of what have historically been the preferred ideas of cap and trade or carbon tax have led us to this sort of focus on the clean energy standard. And it's also, you know, it helps that dozens of states around the country are, our country already have clean energy standards or renewable portfolio standards. So people know how they work and they can sort of envision this happening at scale. So to your question of how these pieces fit together, you know, our view is in why, you know, why you need to accelerator if you have a clean energy standard, it's, not really more complicated than um, if you're going to create a mandate, the government really better make sure that they give a way, they provide a pathway for people to actually meet that mandate in a cost-effective way, or else you're probably going to have some um, undesirable economic and political consequences. That's what I would say. Um, I think if it's really, really important to push the power sector and the utility sector to move quickly, but we also need to give them the tools and resources that they need so that they can do it without um, being stuck between a rock and a hard place between, uh, you know, investors that are not going to take a lower rate of return than they've made for a century and regulators that are telling utilities, well, you're not going to increase our the rates on rate, uh, rate payers because we're just not going to allow you to pass those costs on. And so the utility is sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place where, you know, what are they going to do? They, there's only, you know, two places where that money could come from, the, util the, the investors or the ratepayers enter the third party of that transaction in the accelerator and, uh, you know, flexible capital can have a huge impact on what otherwise was a pretty sticky situation for that utility and helping to uh, finance clean power, grid, uh, grid resources, resilience, uh, storage, and other things that are necessary to achieve a 100% clean energy grid, provide financing in ways that uh, ensures that um, ratepayers don't face a cost impact while also allowing the utilities to stay in business, which is fundamentally what, what I think the concern would be without having something like an accelerator. 
Sure, you lay it out really well and make a lot of good points. Um, okay, so finally, you know, we've talked about a national green bank. So I'm wondering what other federal policies and initiatives is the coalition watching? In other words, what should folks kind of with skin in the renewable space <laughs> be watching out for? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a, I mean, there's, there's you know, two to three billion dollars worth of policies in there. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot to pay attention to. I think, um, you know, a couple jump out from, from my perspective and my sort of narrow little purview. One is um, there was a $25 billion call out for a pre-development fund, um, which is basically um, the government saying, we know that there are a lot of important clean energy projects out there, particularly in places like multifamily affordable housing, where it's just getting a project ready to be financed, you know, doing the auditing, doing the engineering, uh, doing the just general day-to-day project development work is expensive and it's really hard to come up with the money for that. And so that's the government saying like, we recognize that um, someone's got to pay for this. And it's, if it goes into the cost of the project that gets passed on to the customer, the economics of the whole project blow up. And so having a that pre-development fund is, is really important and it, it sort of couples very well with, with the role of an accelerator. Also, by the way, it's like an extremely common um, uh, development finance tool used around the world that is very often called a project preparation facility where development banks around the world will have sort of a, a, a national development bank or an infrastructure bank that provides financing to the project and they also have sort of stuck onto the side of it a, a project preparation facility. And so in some ways that pre-development fund concept that's in the Biden plan is borrowing from what we already know works and has a pretty catalytic effect on bringing forward project pipeline. So that's one that I was really excited to see in there. Um, another one is definitely around the um, policies around transmission. I think a lot of attention is, is focusing on the role of transmission because, um, you know, again, coming back to that 100% clean energy and total economy electrification, that only works if you have a, you know, a, a clean electron superhighway system carrying power from all over the country to anywhere else in the country. Um, not only is it essential from a cost perspective because, you know, uh, solar power is really, really cheap in certain parts of the country and not as cheap in others. And if you can transmit it, then um, you know you can reduce the cost in, in certain parts of the country, but also it's a it's a resilience component as we can see very clearly in Texas that you know basically Texas not having access to a transmission network outside of the state was extremely problematic and, and you know had had a genuine human toll in ways that I think are still hard to process. Um, but also you know <laughs> this is a simplified but. The wind is blowing and the sun is shining somewhere in this country most of the time. And uh, we need a ton of storage to deal with the intermittency issues, but also just having a better transmission system will help with that. And so the investment tax credit that was proposed for transmission is a really intriguing policy, um, as well as the proposed grid deployment authority, which is um, a really exciting concept that there wasn't a lot of detail on, but basically would be creating a an agency within the U.S. Department of Energy that would have um, certain, I guess I would say, sovereign power related to using existing rights of way and potentially eminent domain to, to speed up transmission line development, as well as some innovative financing tools. Um, 
so those those pieces, the transmission pieces, really jump out. Um, but I think the, the, you know the, another one that's huge but doesn't have a lot of definition is the hundreds of billion dollars focused on housing and you know low income affordable housing upgrades in general. Um, again, coming back to the sort of environmental justice and LMI component, it just this has to be central to how the government thinks about addressing climate change. Not only, at least from my perspective, is the moral and ethical imperative, but um, the benefits are just so staggering if we think about expanding job creation and business formation to communities that are historically underserved. And we think about pathways for actual genuine wealth creation and, and asset formation where, yeah, it's, if you, it's good to allow people to get clean energy at lower energy costs. That's essential for lowering energy burdens. But really the pathway to economic equity and uh, equality in this country is to more is to create more opportunities for long-term wealth creation in communities and households that historically haven't had access to it. And so seeing a huge amount of money focused on low-income housing is a really, really smart way of trying to deliver those benefits and creating those opportunities for increasing economic equality across the U.S. And, um, you know, there's a lot of details to be worked out, but I think the accelerator, I know the accelerator is going to have a big role to play in that. Um, it's a part of the clean energy economy that's been chronically underserved. And, you know, it also has tons of knock-on benefits around uh, increased uh, public health, reduced emissions, increased comfort in homes. Um, there's, you know, there has to be a coordinated strategy around, you know, what you could call like whole home upgrades where it's, you know, replacing lead pipes, it's remediating like mold and other sort of environmental hazards, energy efficiency to reduce energy consumption and bills, electrifying uh, in-home appliances, like turning gas stoves into electric, which again are actually turned out to be really dangerous health hazards in a lot of homes and making sure all the power is, is clean. And so if you think about all of the all of the money and all the policy attention that's in the American Jobs Plan that's focused on this need. It's it's very exciting and frankly reflects what what really needs to be done. And again, the accelerator has a has an important sort of symbiosis with with all of those policies. Yeah, and it should be very interesting and exciting to see how a federal green bank addresses all of those issues, um, especially like you mentioned, environmental justice communities and things like that, a just transition. Um, it's so critical to moving us forward in the fight against climate change. So oh, a lot to think about and a lot of interesting new initiatives to keep my eye on. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will also be watching them as well. So, so Jeff, another great conversation. Every conversation I have with you, I, I learn a lot. I love talking to you. Um, thrilled that you were on today. So I just want to thank you for sharing your insights with our listeners. I so enjoyed our conversation and please promise to come back as this initiative advances. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is a really wonderful speaking to you and the timing is great. It's a very exciting moment for Green Banks and the Accelerator. And um, obviously people are still processing everything that's in the president's plan. And so I'm sure in a couple of weeks and a couple of months, we'll, we'll know a lot more. So really look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it as well. And I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to tune in next time um, for NPM on the air. Until next time, folks.